Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. So glad to be with you, City on a Hill. As the kids and teachers are making their way, I just want to say, as someone who's not a member here, but a regular, someone, uh, if uh, I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name's Tom Richter, I'm a pastor in Queens, our church meets in the evening, and so over the years I've be, uh, been able to be blessed to be part of the teaching team here at City on a Hill, and so as someone who's outside looking in, I love your announcements, I get encouraged and inspired to know how active the body is here particularly was blessed by Bill and Alice and uh, without being a member, I mean, I, I was like, oh, the, oh, oh, it all clicks. You know, these are the people that, you know, made me feel so welcome as a stranger coming in. I'm like, oh, I, I didn't know that they, they, they were gatekeepers and had done it so long. I just knew this is the couple that when I get done, they say, you come here, you, you know, and I'm like, that was the worst sermon I've ever preached, you know, you, you know. Just the unconditional love that flows from someone. It's like, what are you people, Christians? Like, saved by God's grace that it would flow out into others. And for anybody who's involved in the gatekeeping ministry, I gave a little plug for nursery last week. But uh, to you all, you know what I tell my greeters. I mean, the first thing I tell them is somebody comes here with a gun, you take a bullet for the pastor. You know, that's why nobody signs up. But no, what I really tell them is I say, you know, um, it's very easy to think like, oh yeah, we open the doors and we, uh, you know, we, we welcome people. And, and, and you tell them like that, that can make a real difference. You know, somebody smile and say hi. And what I always remind them is what I remind myself on days where you think, man, you know, I'm, I'm coming up here. I'm going to open the word of God and I'm going to preach. Yes, you're preaching to a lot of people who are going to come here every Sunday, but every single Sunday, that's a reminder for all of us, every single Sunday, and it might be today, somebody, somebody. Last night and this morning have been wrestling with God and they're done and they're done and they're hanging on by a thread and they say to themselves, they Google Christian churches near me or something and they say, God, I'll give you one last chance to speak or that's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm hanging on by a thread, but I'm looking for anything here. So God, if you're real, if you're out there, I'll give you one last chance. I'll find a church and I'll roll in there and let's, let's whatever. And that's where they're coming in, looking for one ounce of hope. And the first thing they see is somebody saying, I'm glad you're here. You know, get in here, you. Right? Right? And it matters what you preach. It matters the way you see somebody new sitting next to you in the pew. A lot of them are just, it's perfunctory. We're here on a sunny morning. But somebody here is desperate. And it makes all the difference in the world. Now, the irony is two desperate people who've never been here before usually sit next to each other. And like, so these are the regulars. So these are the regulars. I'm like, no, everybody needs a label. I'm regular. You can talk to me or whatever. Right? Oh, you have to grant for that. You have to allow for that. But that's why that meeting, I mean, you're the first face they see. You're not representing city on a hill. You're representing God to them. You know, like you're representing like, okay, these are God's people. Um, and of course you can't tell them like disclaimer, I got my own issues, you know, I, I, right. You should be able to tell them that, but you can't, you know, at the end of, uh, the near the end of the gospel of Mark, we come now to what is, uh, often talked about on good Friday, but as a Christian church, we talk about it throughout the year and we've come to the end of the gospel of Mark. And today we're going to be in chapter 15. We're talking about the atonement. We're talking about Calvary. We're talking about what happened on that Friday when Jesus was crucified. So turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 15. I've also got the verses up here on screen, as is my custom, so that you can follow along. We are going to sort of provide some running commentary, walking through Mark chapter 15. For those of you who like a map of where we go before we get on the journey... You know, some people like to know where we're going. Some of you are like, I'm along for this ride. I can't wait to see where he's going to take us. Others of you are like, I, I kind of want to know. We're going to do some running commentary through what happened on that Friday. And we're going to end with uh, uh, some comments that were made that uh, we're that were um, uh, surprising from people toward Jesus. Uh, normally on Good Friday, you talk about Jesus's words from the cross. 
Uh, and today I want to, uh, like I said, do some running commentary, set the stage, and then end with some comments that were made not from the cross, but from the ground uh, that uh, were made toward Jesus. So you'll see, I think, at the end how this applies very much to us. Let's begin in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. Clearly, they mean business here. They've got quite a few soldiers involved. What were they doing? Why would the soldiers lead him away? I'm catching you up a little bit. You know that after uh, what I preached on last week, paying taxes to Caesar, one thing led to another. This, uh, this whole idea of Messiah, the king, that Jesus was going to come and he was going to fight for God's chosen people and he was going to put them back in a place of preeminence. And yet when Jesus comes, he says something like, my kingdom is not of this world. He, he rejects the world's means of grasping for power and using violence to get ahead. And the people who were ready to just enthrone him as king were so frustrated that he wouldn't fight. He wouldn't take up a sword. He wouldn't say the word. Let's start the revolution. He wouldn't do it. Instead, rejected that and drew their attention to heavenly kingdom, something about his father, something about loving the Lord and loving neighbor. And they gave up the powers that be realized we just got to get rid of this guy. Uh, a, a plan was set into motion. They had one in his inner circle who was ready to betray him. So frustrated, ready to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. They capture him. They're going to put him through this mockery of a trial. Sure enough, it was a mockery of a trial. The accusers couldn't even agree on what they were trying to charge Jesus with. They couldn't even agree on the charges. Jewish law says you can't even tr have a trial in the dead of night. It needs to be in the openness of day. And they do it under the cover of darkness. So much wrong. Justice was a, was a joke. It was a farce. Even poor Pilate says, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. The Jews couldn't crucify him, so they send him to the Romans. The Romans are like, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. And so at a last minute bid to try to get himself out of this whole situation, Pilate says, you know what? I'll, hey, I release a political prisoner every year to keep the crowds happy. Why don't you take Jesus? And they said, we'd rather have Barabbas because at least Barabbas would be a fighter. At least Barabbas would fight for us. We don't know what to do with Jesus. And so the crowd is incited to crucify him. Pilate says, all I want is peace and quiet. All I want to do is get through this Passover weekend, which has the ability, like a powder keg, to be incendiary. And I do not want a revolution. I'm, I'm trying to make my way out of this hick town and get to Rome and, and like trying to Pilate's got his own career to worry about. He doesn't want to be in some back corner of the Roman empire here in Jerusalem. He wants to be in Rome or some seat of power. And so he just wants peace and quiet. He appeases the crowd by giving them Jerusalem, uh, by giving them Jesus. And so he gives, he tells them soldiers, fine, take him and crucify him. Their orders were to crucify him. They decided to do more than crucify him. Their orders were to crucify, but they thought, let's have a little fun first. Instead of just crucifying him, they sort of invented this part on their own. They clothed him in a purple cloak, right? The robe royalty would wear, twisting together a crown of thorns. Oh, you're a king. Well, certainly you need a crown. And they make a crown of thorns to add to his agony and torture and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews, right? It's hilarious. Here's the last thing that looks like a king to them. And they were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him, right? Total mockery. And when they had mocked him, then they stripped him of the purple cloak. They put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Crucifixion was Rome's punishment, as we've talked about, for those who would be insurrectionists, those who would be martyrs. It was a excruciating death. In fact, we get the Latin word for cross, crux, is where is a derivative. We get the word excruciating. When someone talks about excruciating pain, that word comes from the word for cross. Jesus had perhaps lost so much blood. Normally, they, they ask the criminal who's condemned to carry his own cross up the hill because Jesus perhaps had been already scourged so badly and weakened or lost so much blood he himself is apparently unable to do that and so they compelled a passerby simon of cyrene who was coming in from this in the country the father of alexander and rufus to carry his cross they sort of conscript this simon of cyrene 
character. And they bring him to a place, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And here we begin to see some Old Testament scriptures unfolding. Going back just one verse, this wine mixed with myrrh, he didn't take it. As I said, crucifixion was an agonizing death. For many who have been in Christian churches for years, perhaps you've heard and, and pondered and considered the great agony and physical torture. Uh, uh, a criminal would be tied or hung or uh, 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 nails in Jesus' case, nails driven into his hands, nails driven into his feet. Crucifixion was interestingly a, a death by Asphyxiation. It could take hours, sometimes days for this poor victim to die. Uh, the, the, apparently, the lungs would collapse and to take a breath, they'd have, to, they'd have to muster enough strength to raise themselves up to gasp for air and then collapse back down until such time as when they had no strength left to raise themselves for that breath. They would actually die the cruel death of asphyxiation, hanging there in agony until they eventually slip into sub- unconsciousness and then death. And so they sort of offer him this wine mixed with myrrh, just trying to uh, ease his pain, some sort of mix between some sort of uh, uh, anesthetic and sort of Gatorade. You know, it had the electrolytes there and and sort of first century version of that. He wouldn't take it. And they crucified him, divided his lots. uh, Sorry, divided his garments, casting lots. Now, this is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 22. In Psalm chapter 22, it talks about this person who's in great suffering and he's righteous. He himself is righteous. And yet there are these strong bulls that surround him, the devouring lions, these dogs around him. And at one point it says they cast lots for my garments. And here we see a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 22 that sure enough, they're they're dividing his garments and they cast lots to see who gets what. It was the third hour. That's about 9 a.m. They count the first hour at 6 a.m. Here's the third hour, 9 a.m. when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. You may remember last week, I made the point that when Jesus was crucified between two robbers, they weren't up there for shoplifting. The Greek word thief or brigand, the idea these were insurrectionists. Why? Because they incited the people not to pay their taxes to Rome. And if you don't pay your taxes to Rome, Rome has crucified you because technically, from their point of view, you have robbed Caesar of what's rightfully his. So you are, in fact, a robber. You're a, a, the, the Greek word lestes. You're, a, you're, you're an insurrectionist. At one point, uh, they crucified 2,000 of Judas the Galilean's followers about 30 years before this time. And can you imagine them all along the road to Galilee? They're hanging there, writhing, and passersby would look. Those who had sort of couldn't look away. But as you saw that, Rome's message was very clear. Anyone who wants to rob Rome, this is what's going to happen to you. I believe this is also a fulfillment. One on his right and one on his left. A few days ago, two of his closest followers, James and John, they see where this is going. They realize Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, right? And they know this is going to be filled with power, right? I mean, the, come on. The guy can, he can, he can walk on water. He can feed the 5,000. He can raise the dead. He is going to overtake Pilate. He's going to overtake Caesar. There's going to be so much power when he goes into Jerusalem. Woo! And he is lifted up. You know where this is going. So James, like John, ask him, ask him. All right. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. When we get into Jerusalem, whoa. And you get lifted up to your high position. All we ask, let one of us be on your right and let the other one be on your left. And you remember Jesus' response? It made no sense at the time. But now it makes perfect sense. He says, you you don't know what you're asking. You don't have any idea what it's going to look like for one of you to be on my left and one of you to be on my right. He says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? All they're focused on is what Jesus can do for them. But Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He knows his father's will. He knows where this is going. And he says, guys, you don't know what you're asking. Can you be baptized with the baptism of fire and wrath that I'm about to go through? No. Can you drink the cup of suffering that I'm going to drink? No. Well, those who passed by 
derided him, wagging their heads. Wagging their heads, we see in the Old Testament, it's apparently this Hebrew idiom that today might mean stuck up their noses at him. Turn up their noses at him or something like that. (laughs) Stuck up their nose is a new idiom that I just invented just now. But I think turn up their nose, you know what I mean? Just sort of wagging the head. It just means sort of uh, 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 deriding. They say, aha, you know. Which was, uh, again, aha, like to us, that means like, Eureka, I have found it. To them, aha was like, oh, snap. Not that, but I can't think of whatever. It just means like, uh, you know, oh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, right? Didn't Jesus make that comment? I have so much power. He's looking around Jerusalem, like, look at these buildings. Man, these buildings are permanent and last forever. He says, actually, I'm going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days. He says, oh, that's what you're going to do? He says, well, then save yourself and come down off the cross. And then the chief priests jump in. The chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. So let the Christ, right? Let the Messiah. Aren't you Messiah? Aren't you the king of Israel? Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Always looking for a sign. And what they're saying is, we will still... Even as you're knocking on death's door, there's still, as long as there's breath in you, there's hope. If you do some miracle, if you would just say the word, like the spark, to show us we can have earthly success and power, even now we'll follow you. If you'll come down off the cross, we will follow you. Of course, they're, they're, they're joking. They're saying, we've given you enough chances, and now you're so powerful. Oh, you can raise the dead. You can heal the sick. Clearly, that must have been some sort of demon power or something, because you know you're, God is not going to let his anointed writhe and die on the cross. So come on down. Show yourself. And of course, you can't. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour, that's noon, had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. The ninth hour then would have been, of course, 3 p.m., right? So six is noon, ninth is 3 p.m. Darkness for three hours. Let's talk about this motif. I told you, running commentary. Darkness in Scripture. If we look throughout Scripture, darkness is a motif that generally represents both lament and divine judgment. Okay? So when, when you're reading the Old Testament and you see darkness covers the land, it's, it's either this great... Usually those are very closely related. There's lament over sins and there's divine wrath and judgment. Two famous passages stand out in the Old Testament. One is Amos. In Amos 8th chapter, he's talking about the judgment of God being poured out on the people. The wrath of God coming. And here's what it says. I'll read it to you. Amos 8, 9 and 10. And on that day, declares the Lord God... I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentations. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. And I'll make it like the morning for an only son at the end of a bitter day. In other words, I'm going to make this place like a funeral for somebody who only had one kid, who only had an only begotten son, if you will. I'm going to turn it into that kind of environment for a whole day, for, 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 as if it's the end of a bitter day. On that day, I'm going to make, and when my wrath is poured out, I'm going to make the sun go down at noon. And if you read that passage in context, the prophet Amos is saying, Israel is guilty and I'm going to pour out wrath and destroy Israel because of sin. And then he says this cryptic comment, and yet, I will then raise up and restore Israel. For those of us who have the advantage of being in the new covenant, we look back at the old covenant and we, we see it. Jesus was the true Israel. And he was here bearing the wrath of God. Thus, the land becomes dark at noon. As true Israel is in fact bearing the wrath of God. Adam was to be the image bearer of God Turned against God in rebellion and sin. Israel was meant to be the image bearer of God. You're my chosen people. I brought you out of Egypt. I put you under my wing like a, like a, like a mother eagle. You know, I'm, I'm trying to nurture you, Israel. You're supposed to be my image bearer. Instead, you rebelled and turned against God. But Jesus, the second Adam, Jesus, the true Israel, is here bearing the wrath and judgment that Israel deserves. Bearing the wrath and judgment that Adam deserves. Bearing the wrath and judgment that we deserve. It was poured out on Jesus, the true Israel. And he was hoping and trusting in God to raise him up. The other to me 
is more profound. This, this darkness, by the way, multiple commentaries point out this could not have been a solar eclipse. And they, I mean, I'm not talking like one or two commentaries. I'm talking like six or seven. And when six or seven different commentaries all point out the same thing, usually it's a good sign. Like, oh, that's good. And I think this is true. It's totally true. The other thing is I'm always like, okay, okay. Like, why did they pick this? But six or seven commentaries are like, this could not be a solar eclipse because it happened on Passover. You know, Passover is connected to the full moon. And Passover was a full moon. And there could not be a solar eclipse on Passover, right? And you're like, oh, okay. The funny part to me was like, Everybody just sort of got that clearly, right? You guys are all astrophysicists, right? Because there can't be, I mean, full moon eclipse, right? Why would that happen? And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Understanding none of it. But apparently everybody wanted to be clear. This could not have been a solar eclipse. What's their point? I think their point is this had to be an act of God. For darkness to turn, that for the land to be dark from noon to 3 p.m. while Christ, the sinless one, is bearing the sins of the world. It had to be some act of God. It couldn't just be a natural phenomenon. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, Jesus died on a solar eclipse. It couldn't have been. The other more profound spot in the Old Testament where we see this darkness, uh, God's judgment was poured out once, once earlier on Passover, on the original Passover, and it was poured out in the form of darkness. You remember this? Uh, when God wanted to rescue his people out of Egypt <clears throat> to stir Pharaoh's hardened heart, he... Uh, poured out these 10 plagues. You remember this, right? And the 10th plague was, of course, the death of the firstborn son. It happened on Passover. On Passover, one of only two things could be true. In every single household, there was a death. Every household. In Israel, in Egypt, everywhere, there was a death. Either it was the death of the firstborn son, wrath poured out, or it was the death of an unblemished lamb in place of, of the death of the firstborn son. In other words, a substitute could be killed and the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost. Either way, there was a death. Either way, there was penalty and payment for sin and it was poured out. That wrath was poured out. It was either on the son or it was on a spotless lamb. And who can miss the symbolism that on the cross, Jesus, both son of God and spotless lamb sacrificed for the sins of the world is poured out on Passover. Here he is about to die And what was the penultimate plague? Do you remember? So the tenth plague is the death of the firstborn son. But what was the ninth? What's the thing that cues the tenth plague? What's the thing that comes before the final, the ninth plague? Darkness. Darkness over the whole land. And it was dark for three days. Here, the symbolism continues. Three days, three hours. And not just darkness. As I once preached on Exodus years ago here at City on a Hill Community Church, I talked about darkness. And uh, I, I don't even think I was preaching on Exodus. I think I was making up some point about darkness. And I talked about terminal darkness because one of the things I do in my sermon is sort of make up science. And uh, I talked about terminal darkness. The idea that there, surely there comes a point where it's so dark, there mu- you have to reach terminal darkness, right? Like it can't get any darker. You've reached dark, darker. You've reached terminal darkness. And one of your own church members came up to me afterward and said, oh, there's something darker than dark. There's something that's beyond terminal darkness. And I was like, go on, <laughs> right? And he opened up Exodus. And sure enough, I saw it with my own eyes. He says, look, in the plagues in Exodus, it says there was a darkness that covers the land, a darkness that could be felt. What's darker than dark? An oppressive darkness that could be felt. And I was like, that will go in my future sermons. Like, well played, Exodus studier. And and, and, and that's it. I assure you, I wasn't there. You weren't there. But from noon to 3 p.m., I assure you at Calvary, surely that was a darkness that could be felt before the death of the firstborn. Again, we're running commentary here. Move, move along. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lama sambachthani. Loud voice, right? Yells it out. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here again, he's, he's, these are the words of Psalm chapter 22. He's quoting from Psalm 22. Now, why did he pray this particular Psalm? Psalm 22 is the Psalm where a righteous man is being persecuted he's being destroyed and, and he, he he has no reason he's done nothing wrong and yet he's being persecuted by these evil people certainly psalm 22 clearly expresses what jesus is facing on the on the cross the psalm ends with a kind of hopeful trust in god yet i know that you're enthroned in israel you know it ends in trust but you see why jesus pay, pr- prayed this particular prayer this cry was the actual agony of a human soul abandoned by god 
Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, your sins have separated you from God. And here Christ felt what it was like to be separated from God. This was the great horror that he prayed in the garden. Let this cup pass from me. Whether Jesus was actually, literally abandoned by God, or whether he felt abandoned by God, but that God was right there with him. But for the first time, he felt sin's effects. Here he is bearing the sins of the world. Second Corinthians says, God, he who had no, God made him who had no sin to be sin on our behalf. So here he is with the, the sin, whether he was literally abandoned by God, or whether in Jesus' perception he felt abandoned by God, I do not know. I have boldly preached for both sides of that, and I, st- I still don't know where to land. I, I don't know. But I do believe that in the garden, many, many martyrs face their death bravely. Right? I mean, a martyr, oh, I'm going to die for my cause. We're going to burn you at the stake. Doesn't matter. Freedom. You know, whatever, right? Boldly. Was Jesus a coward? To say, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to go to the cross. He wasn't afraid of the crucifix. He wasn't afraid of the physical torture. He wasn't a coward. Martyrs have died for their cause, but no one, no one has ever died bearing the wrath of the whole world's sin. And that's what no soul, that's a kind of agony that no one, no one, this side of hell, would ever experience. And Jesus, who loved the thought, listen, it, it's like the heights you fall. You know what I mean? Listen, if you're poor your whole life, you are dirt poor your whole life. And you live in a subpar apartment. You're like, eh, I can deal. But if you've been raised with a silver spoon and you've been, you've had everything at your beck and call and you lived in a mansion and then you have to live in a really subpar broken slum, right? You feel it more, right? It hurt, right? Imagine the heights Jesus falls to go from the glories of heaven's splendor to a stable in Bethlehem to a cross in Calvary. It's not just the pain, it's the height from which he fell, infinite. Imagine the closeness of God that you and I feel. Imagine having that torn away. Imagine the perfect closeness Christ felt having that torn away. No martyr ever had to face that. Jesus offered himself to bear the judgment of God. That's the profound horror of the separation from God. This was the cost. This, whether it was in reality or whether he felt it, this was the cost of provide. This was what it cost to ransom a human soul back from sin. And yet he did not renounce God. He had faith there to the end. And Jesus expressed his faith through Psalm 22. Eloi, Eloi, lama sambachthani. Now, of course, when he yelled that out, there's this intimate moment going on between him and the father. And all, 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 every other time he says, he calls God father. Here he says, my God, my God. Of course, folks misunderstand it, right? You do all this and people are like, Eli. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. Now what's going on here? There's all these languages that have descended for the festival. Some are speaking Aramaic. Some are still speaking Greek. Some are speaking, you know, these different. And he says, they hear Eli, Eli. Instead of hearing Aramaic, my God, my God, they hear Eli. Oh, I bet he's calling for Elijah. What in the world is the deal with Elijah? Let's talk for Elijah for just a second. And sure enough, behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone came with more Gatorade, a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a reed. They give him a drink saying, wait, wait, wait. Let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. All through, you know, is John the Baptist Elijah? What's going on with Elijah? Let's talk about Elijah for a second. Why does he keep appearing? Why do people pray like Elijah's going to come? It goes back to a Jewish legend. That's, it's like an urban legend that's based on a kernel of truth. Here's the kernel of truth. In the Old Testament, Elijah didn't technically die. Like you can't find any body for Elijah. He's somewhere. Right? That's actually true. You've heard the spiritual swing low, sweet chariot coming for to carry me home. There was a sweet chariot, band of angels that came and swept up Elijah. So you tell me, right? We believe that he is, you know, in, in heaven and waiting with the rest of the saints in glory for the new heaven, new earth. But the final and ultimate resurrection of all things. But. You know, technically he did not. So then there becomes this urban legend that when a, when a righteous person 
was at their wits end when it was like, if you will, it was like Elijah was kind of the Jewish legendary patron of lost causes. And when all hope was lost, lost righteous causes, LRCs. And, and, and Elijah was the patron saint of the LRCs. And, and, and he's like, at the last moment, he'll come in. And if ever there was a hopeless, righteous cause, it was Jesus dying on the cross. And at the last minute, they're like, Elijah's going to come. He's going to come. I mean, no one stops to ponder. He's an 1,800-year-old superhero. I got this. Like, it, it come, I don't know what he's going to do when he gets there. But whatever. He's going to come. And he's going to you know rescue him. And the fiery chariot and rescue righteous people. And so they're thinking this. They're thinking this. It's got to be something like this. Once Jesus breathes his last Hope is gone. Once he's dead, all hope is gone. But as long as, if we can just give him a little bit more sour wine, something, just let him, just hang on, hang on. And at the very last moment, that's when Elijah will swoop in. So we just got to keep him alive for a few more minutes, a few more minutes, right? They're telling Jesus at the last of his life, Jesus, who here, bearing the wrath of God, has his full faith in God. And they're telling him, put your faith in a superstition. Of course, he won't do it. Our hero, Jesus, won't do it. He won't take it. And, it. and he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. I don't know what this loud cry was. Perhaps there were words to it. Perhaps it was a cry of victory. But if it were, to align with John's gospel, if it were, in fact, a loud cry with words, it was perhaps the words, it is finished. You know, Either way, right? If he literally yelled out, if the loud cry is, it is finished, or if it was, it is finished, oh, a great cry of victory, this is not how people on crosses died. You've heard of the death rattle? You know, if you've been at someone's deathbed, that last sort of gasp of breath, it's very quiet, and a, a total yielding and surrender. This is the cry of a triumphant, victorious warrior. This is someone who from the cross is yelling, and now, as in the Romans didn't kill him, the Jews didn't kill him, he came to die and he got to pick when. He's the alpha, he's the omega, he gets to say when it's been, he gets to say when it's done. When the Romans owed a debt, when you owed a debt, you were given a bill, you were given a, a, a bill that showed your credit card statement, you know what I mean? And when it was paid you needed proof to show i didn't have his credit they didn't have an online system and oh yeah we've got that in the computer you either had that document or you were still good for that debt but when you did you would go to the roman clerk and they would give you this blessed stamp then that stamp said it is finished that's the same greek phrase for paid in full paid in full it is finished and now you could show everybody i don't owe you nothing it's been paid paid in full now we're good it is finished paid in full jesus Jesus bears the wrath for sin until it's all poured out and he goes, and done, paid in full. And that's you and me. That's our ransom before God. So the accuser, Satan, comes and says, what about your past? Huh? What about your recent past? What about your real recent past? Like, like moments before you came to church today. Some of you have managed to sin while in church this morning. I've done it. And Satan wants to say to you, what about that? What are you going to show him? He's right, unless you pull out justification by faith and you say paid in full. Paid in full. Want to talk about my past? Let's talk about your future. Hmm? Because the great victor cried out, paid in full for you and for me. Who's left to condemn? There's only, there's only, there is a person in this room right now that is sinless and could throw stones at every one of us. And it's the one who died on Calvary's cross. The only one who could condemn, the only one who could bring a charge against God's elect said, actually, I'll be the payment for their sin. This is the loud cry. Now, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We're almost done with our running commentary. Thank you for your patience. Top to bottom. Why was the curtain? Okay, so you get, all right, so the, the temple's here. Jesus dies. You can, if you're, a, if you're a righteous Israelite man who has properly washed themselves ceremonially, you can go into a generally holy place. This is the courtyard, right? If you were the 
high priest sent to represent the people one day of a year. It comes up in a couple weeks. Yom Kippur. You could go, not in just the temple, you could go into the, not the holy place, the holiest of holies. And there you would go through this veil that separated. And there the Ark of the Covenant. This is God's dwelling place on earth. And when Jesus dies, separation, what separates God and man is ripped apart, right? Some say that's so humans could get to God. Others say that's God was demonstrating he would not be caged by a temple or a tomb. Either way, the part I want you to notice is it wasn't ripped from the bottom to the top. The best human righteousness can do in our attempt to get to God is to say, there's God. I know he's on the other side of that. I know we got to get through our sin. We got to get to him. We got to clean ourselves up. Come on, help me rip this thing. Yeah, we're doing it. Wow. Our righteousness is really growing. I know. I know we're awesome. Oh, that's okay. That that was prideful. So it kind of reformed. Okay. Let's try again. Come on guys. Let's get together. We got to be generous. Yeah. Tithing. Wow. Tithing really gave a good rip. Yeah. But worthless utter before God. Sorry. Right? Rip it again. We got to keep trying. The best. Mother Teresa got like two feet. You know? You feel me? So what we need is a righteousness that not comes from human effort. I mean, get every religion in here. I don't care. I'm no respecter of persons, right? There's some Muslims that are doing a lot better than I am in terms of the way they treat one another. There, there, there's some Jews, there's some Hindus. The secular atheists are a lot of times a lot nicer than I am, you know, right? Oh, that, that's great. We're all getting in together. All of humanity. We're going to build this thing. We tried this Tower of Babel. How'd that go? We're doing it. What we need is a righteousness that comes top to bottom. Once for all, the righteousness he can give. That's why the gospel is not a... Ultimately, it's not a it's not a Christian thing. It's an equal opportunity. It doesn't matter what. Well, but ethnically, I'm Christian. I mean, Christianity is not a culture. It's not an ethnicity. It's, it knows no bounds. It's for anybody who's ever realized I have no hope before coming before the ultimate holy one in the universe. Here's the hope: He can give you the righteousness that you yourself cannot get. See. Well, this brings us full circle. Mark opens and closes with stuff being ripped open. The book of Mark opens in chapter one, when Jesus is baptized, the sky is ripped open and God says, that's my son. Listen to him. And here at the end of his ministry, so, so God's dwelling in heaven is ripped open. And the book ends with God's dwelling on earth being ripped open. Mark is all about stuff being violently torn open and God exploding into your life. So here the centurion says, okay, when the centurion who did not grow up in church. Because there was no church. He did not grow up in synagogue school either. The point is, when the centurion who stood facing him, this pagan centurion, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This is the climax of the gospel of Mark. Other than the resurrection. This, this moment. Mark 1, what does he say? In the very first in the very first verse in the whole gospel, it says the gospel of the royal announcement concerning Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of God. We get eight chapters before somebody finally realizes he's Messiah. And it takes us eight more chapters before somebody realizes truly this man was the Son of God. It's the climax of the royal announcement of the gospel that Jesus is the Son of God. So how did he get to this point? Uh, and here's where we are done with the running commentary. And now uh, we, uh, <clears throat> I want to just conclude with these uh, uh, statements briefly. How did he get to this point? How does a Roman centurion get to this point to understand that he was the son of God? I think it has to do, could be that he saw the veil of the temple ripped. It could be that he's, ne- he's witnessed a lot of deaths. He's witnessed a lot of crucifixions. And yet this guy, he's never seen like a victorious battle cry. And he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check out now go. He's never seen that. But either way, I think the answer lies in this little phrase. And when the centurion, what? Look, look, look. Who stood facing him. Every other character in this story is milling past him or wagging their heads or looking sort of a sideways glance at him. This guy, his job is to turn and behold the lamb. His job is to orient his life in such a way that he is facing the cross. 
as long as people just read articles about evangelicals or, you know, people talk in the news and you kind of get around God. But who is truly standing facing Christ on the cross, considering him when we take the body and the bread, considering why he died and how did he die so strong? And what does it mean? The veil of the temple is ripped open. Otherwise, we're just mocking. Now, of those who mocked him, I want to go back to three, three comments, three mockers. Okay, here's the first. Um, I'm just going to cycle back. I may have put them conveniently at the end, but I, I don't know if I did or not. So here we go. Here's the soldiers, right? They began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Here's what I want you to see. This is mockery number one. Hail, king of the Jews. Oh, he's Messiah. They couldn't understand. They'd never seen anything so funny in their life. Their job as Roman soldiers was to go out and get these insurrectionists. And from time to time they had. So I imagine the Thursday, I imagine Thursday afternoon, evening in the uh, armory. And these soldiers are talking to each other. What do you think, man? How many, how many guys do you think we're going to need? I don't know. I heard this guy's the real deal. I know. Were you here when we had to take down Judas the Galilean? Was I? Yeah, man. 2,000 of his followers. I remember. Took two legions and a centurion. I know. I know. And uh, we, uh, we lost a lot of good men that day. Yeah. I, I didn't know there was so much fight in these Jewish peasant farmers. Apparently, the Galilean had, had taken, they'd taken their plows and ground them down into swords. Yeah. So they're getting another sword and they're getting another spear. You got the chariots ready? Yeah, we got the chariots. It's going to take, it's going to take a battalion. It's going, to take, it's going to take a legion, I know. And this guy, supposedly, there's stories. I don't, man, I don't know. But he's got some sort of power over the people. He had thousands of people one time over in Galilee. They were telling stories you wouldn't believe. I know, man. And, like, you know, they were pagan enough to know there's some spiritual forces. And this guy supposedly can do some stuff that's spiritual. I don't know. And so they gear up, right? They get all ready. And they go and they march out there. How many is it going to be? And they, well, how are we going to find him? We got one of our spies, apparently, is in his group. Somebody, Judas or something. All right, all right. So they go, they get there, legion, you know, all this big band of soldiers, whatever. And they get there to the garden and they see him and they get there and it's like, oh, this is a trap. This has got to be a trap because they get there and it's Jesus and a bunch of people. And like one of them has a sword and it's Peter. And even Peter begins to fight and he like is so bad. He tries to cut a guy's head off and he just sort of whiffs and hits his ear. And the Romans are like, so all of our casualties was one guy's ear and it wasn't even one of ours. It was the high priest's servant. Like, wow, that's it. And then as if all that wasn't like ridiculous enough, the one guy who did get hurt, this rebel of the state bent down and like healed the guy. So the casualty was like one with an asterisk, not even one. Like what is going on? And he told Peter to put away the sword. So the Roman soldiers take him and they're like, what's going on? And that, that goes back to why they put a battalion of, of soldiers around him. So then the, the, here's, here's why they do this. Here's my point. They get all these soldiers around him during his trial. And they're like, something's really wrong here. He's got power. He's got thousand people. Ah, of course it's a trick. It's a trap. He must've brought us here and he's waiting to, for his followers to spring into action. So they're like, we're not going to be fooled. We're ready for it. Still nothing. So they say, all right, all right, surely if we beat this guy and we mock him, surely then his followers will come, right? And so they begin to beat him and they mock him and still nothing. And my point is this, when they said, hail king of the Jews, it was mockery and it was absolutely true. He is in fact the Messiah. He is the king of the Jews. And it was in mockery, but Romans bowed down to Jesus in that moment. So the first mockery was ironically full of truth. So was the second. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. The irony is the temple was his own body. And it would be destroyed. And in three days he would rise from the dead. Again, a mocking comment proved to be ironically the truth. And finally, the chief priests and the scribes. Got it right, most of all. Mocked him to one of those saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. This is the one that gets me every time. They were absolutely wrong and yet absolutely right. Here's how they were wrong. What they mean is, hey, this guy healed the sick. Huh. He, he, made the, he made the blind to see and the lame to walk. He even raised someone from the dead. And yet here he is. Ha! All that power. What's it gotten you? You saved others. You can't even save yourself. So on one sense, it's complete mockery. On the other hand, it's absolutely theologically 100% 
truth. He could have saved himself. Just say the word, and not just Elijah, but legions of angels come down and they eradicate all the Roman soldiers. But if he did, if he saved himself, he couldn't have saved others. We would have been lost. He made a choice. But if he allowed himself to be lost, he could save you and me. If he saved others, he cannot save himself. And there's Jesus hearing this. Ha! You saved others. You can't save yourself. That's right. And instead of choosing to save myself in this moment, I'm laying down my life for you. And for you, and for you, and for me. Make no mistake, it wasn't iron nails that held him to that cross. It was the never-ending love of God. Somebody uh, asked me uh, a couple months ago, they weren't, they weren't from New York or anything, they, 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 I was preaching in Texas, and they said, uh, uh, I, I really want to ask you a question. I'm so glad they asked me. They asked me, um, uh, what do I say to my friend? I want to share the gospel with him. Um, she was a, uh, a lady who was struggling because she had this friend, and she said, I want to tell them about Jesus. I want to share the gospel and the plan of salvation. But they're so, and she asked me, this, she said, I don't know how to say this, but they're so content. Like, they're so happy. You know what I mean? Like, what, what do they need? They're perfectly content. They're good people and they're happy. Like, what's the apologetic for that? And I was so glad she asked that question because it allowed me to sit down. I said, we need to sit down and talk. Um, let's back up a second. I see what you're saying. You're like, well, I mean, what does the gospel have to offer this person? They have everything. They're content. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Christ's atoning death on the cross was not to add more contentment and comfort to your life. Listen to me carefully. His, his atoning sacrificial death on the cross was not to make generally unhappy people happy. His death on the cross is because we are under the active wrath of God. We stand in the judgment of God upon sin. And the only thing that separates a sinner from an eternity in hell is one breath or one heartbeat. And Christ stretched out his arms and died on that cross to rescue a lost sinner. He didn't die to make a bad man a good man. He died to make a dead heart beat again. See the difference? I didn't say that to her quite that loudly because we were in a cafeteria. But with everything I could quietly over some stale green beans, I tried to express to her, this is not a cruise ship where you're like, come on, get on board the Jesus ship. And they're like, actually, I'm already in an even more luxurious ship, right? This is not come join a luxury. In fact, if you follow Jesus, your life may actually get worse on this earth. He's not promising you happiness and comfort, but this is not a cruise ship. This is the last rescue chopper out of the war zone. Say, come on. See, that changes your expectations of what church membership will be like, by the way. No bloody, mangled soldier who's hanging on for dear life inside of a Navy SEAL rescue chopper flying to Bethesda Naval Hospital to get a brand new lease on life has ever said, needs a bigger pool. Right? Where are the peanuts and the snack service? Right? They don't expect the luxury. They're grateful to be rescued. In fact, they're saying, let's rescue others. Let's rescue as many as we can. See? Why? Because the atonement. The atonement. That's the difference between us spending eternity in hell and us spending eternity wrapped in the grace of God forever and ever. See? It's because of what he did for you and me. So I tried to express that to her, that you don't really have to sell. If, if people want to be generally more content and they sort of want to upgrade their amount of contentment, just you don't have to go to the cross, just go to Starbucks. It's not hard. Pumpkin spice latte, no, you're good. Uh, but, but if you're a wrecked and ruined sinner, which is what the Bible says, who's standing in judgment before holy God, you've got to wake up. And you can't keep lying to yourself and covering yourself up with little trivialities and the uh, uh, minutia of life, wondering why. Well, this doesn't seem to appeal to anyone who's content. They're lost souls in need of salvation. Maybe you're a lost soul in need of salvation this morning. If that's true, 
Cling to this verse with everything you've got. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He died because he, he refused to save himself so that he could save you. He laid down his life so that you who've been in control of your life for so long could surrender it from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light that you could transfer your trust, your trust in yourself or your trust in Elijah to save you or whatever it is, your money or your righteousness, ripping that veil of the temple from bottom to top, transferred your trust to him. He alone saves to be justified by faith, to say paid in full to the accuser when he comes knocking and to join in the, the rescue chopper mission of saving others and not Seeking what's in it for me. There will be a day ultimately where uh, we'll see his face and he himself will wipe away every tear. And he'll do it with nail scars in his hands. So we're going to have a word of prayer and then we're going to turn our attention to the table, which is the conclusion that we're supposed to remember the scriptures here about atonement. They're meant to be visually remembered here in this moment. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your abiding love and that you are still on the loose and saving sinners. We thank you, O God, that this church gets to join you in your good work. Like a good shepherd, you are reaching out to lost sheep and you have empowered your people right here in this room to be about your business. For anyone here who's never received you, I pray today would be that day where they cross over from death to life, where they ponder, they stare like that centurion. They don't look away from the cross. God, we know that You raised Jesus from the dead. And we thank you that he is alive and inviting us even now to follow. Tune our hearts. Reorient our hearts wherever they need to be shifted today toward your love in Christ's name. Amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, the Bible says he took some bread, right? Because he knew what was about to happen. He knew the cross was coming. And so he gave his followers this blessed Supper of remembrance in 2,000 years. He told us, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, he hasn't returned yet. He's going to return. He hasn't returned yet. So our job is to keep doing this until he, until he comes. Why? Because he told us to. See? So he, he took some bread, and after he gave him thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup in the, in the new covenant given for you. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And that's exactly what we're to do. We're to come and pull to the forefront of our mind a remembrance of Calvary's cross. Like that Roman centurion of old, we are to put at the very forefront of our mind Christ and His cross and ponder the deep and abiding love that God saves sinners. And so, if there are rescued sinners in the house, this is our remembrance, celebration time for all the rescued sinners, right? Now, if you're still on the fence, if you're straddling the fence, you don't need to receive these gifts. You need to receive the Lord. You need to receive His salvation. But for those who are believers, the Supper of Remembrance is meant for you. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.